rest of you, why don't we grab your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. You've been sitting for a little bit. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Missed y'all last week. All of your elders were gone on a retreat as we were doing some planning about what maybe the Lord may give us in future seasons. I'm excited about what the Lord is doing here at King's Chapel, but I know you are well served and better served with Jim Whittle in the pulpit last week, but I'm glad to be back with you. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, hear God's word. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in a man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to do, for them to be joyful, to do good as long as they lived. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, this is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing, anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This sends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of God. May it stand forever. You may be seated. Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, you've heard it. It's uh, one of the most recognizable passages of Scripture in all the Bible. The birds, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, sang about it in a 1960s protest song. John Grisham wrote about it in his breakout novel entitled A Time to Kill, Leo Tolstoy alluded to it in his novel, War and Peace. And interestingly enough, the number one passage of Scripture that is read at funerals for those who don't believe in Jesus is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 8, 1 through 8. It's a poem, and it says, for everything there is a season. There, in other words, there's a place in the world and a, a time in life for every aspect of the human experience a season, as it says here, is a period of time in which it has certain characteristics, right? So we have four seasons in our, our weather. We are currently in winter. So it's time for snow and ice and wind chills or for Georgia for red clay mud and lots and lots of rain. That is what it's like here. That's the characteristic of winter. Thus, the text states that there is an appointed time and season for every of these activities. And life moves from one season to the next. Now, the structure of the poem is important. It has 14 pairs of opposites, 
one to the other. This is called a merism, and it's, it's, it's designed to give us a complete picture of the whole of the human experience, of every season of life. The poem describes every activity. It doesn't remark on them. It doesn't say if any of these activities or seasons of life are good or bad. It simply says, this is life. This is the way it is. And the poem flows in such a way that moving quickly from one to the other, it reflects the fact that life is a constant flowing from one season to another. These seasons are impermanent, often vague, and they're mixed, right? You can experience new life the same day you also experience death. A description is what is being communicated here. The fullness of what this poem is trying to say is, this is life. The Inevitable, perpetual experience of life, from season to season. But when I I look at life like this, when I look at this poem, what in the world are we supposed to do with it? The poem is kind of lovely, right? We read it and go, oh, there's something meandering and beautiful about that. But it's like sitting at the, at the side of the ocean where you're watching waves come in over and over and over and they crash and you go, this is lovely, Now what? What am I supposed to glean about how I'm to view life and these changing seasons of life? What am I supposed to do with this? Well, that's where verses 9 through 15 come in. We're essentially not going to deal with verses 1 through 8. Verses 9 through 15 is the commentary on verses 1 through 8. The teacher of Ecclesiastes, Koheleth is his name, helps us understand the poem and gives us wisdom and shares his lessons along the way. He is teaching that if you're going to live well in a world of ever-changing seasons, an ever-changing world of seasons, there are some lessons that you need to learn. And here are those lessons. There are three of them. We'll move through them, each in their own way. The first is this. You can't control the realities of this season. That's the first thing. The first lesson of life is you are not in control. Verses 9 and 10. What gain has the the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The teacher is saying that this is the way life works. It ebbs and flows. There is no gain. Life is given and life is taken away. You dance one day and you mourn the next. There is no, it's all a yin and a yang. It's a positive and a negative. This is how life works. Rejoicing, all of your hard work will lead to seasons of great prosperity and rejoicing. And the next day, all of your hard work will lead to nothing but poverty and weeping. As I said in the open, this poem is the most often read Bible passage at the funerals actually of non-believers. And we would ask, why would, why would that be? I think there's actually something consoling when we sit in front of death and go, this is out of my hands. I am out of control in this moment. I can't stop this from coming, and so I might as well resign myself to it. It may sound bleak, but in some ways it is a kindness to remind you that so many of the things that we fret about in life, we actually have no control over. The Stoic writer Epictetus said this, whenever we find ourselves worrying, we should ask ourselves this question, do I have any control over that? And the answer for most things is, no, I don't. Oddly enough, you know, Jesus says the same thing. Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life, he said. Koheleth, Epictetus, Jesus are all saying, you can't stop what is coming. 
Life is coming at you, and it's coming at you fast, and you can't slow it down because you are not in control, but someone else is. This moving from season to season, sometimes weeping, sometimes dancing, sometimes at war, sometimes in great peace, this is a life, it says, that God gives. So it says in verse 10, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man. That moving from season to season, all those seasons are given to us by God. You can't avoid it. God has given it to you. It's the way it is. Now, usually people look at the verses 1 through 8, and they see it as the actions that we, t- we take. We are the ones who fight. We are the ones who mourn. Yes, but God is the one who brings the seasons of mourning to us. Just ask the millions and millions of people in Ukraine right now. They were happily enjoying what they viewed as a season of peace. They chose no war, and out of their control, it has come upon them. This passage is making it preeminently clear that God is the one who is sovereignly in control over our lives. Consider simply birth and death, the very two uh, where the the poem begins. Both the cradle and the deathbed follow God's timetable. Psalm 139, for example, verse 16 says this, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. He's already written, your numbered your days. Job 14, verse 5, repeats it. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. The initiation, the duration, and the termination of your existence are all under the sovereign authority of God. But verse 11 actually goes further. Not only is it simply under his authority, God says that whatever he brings in your life, whatever season you are in right now, He says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, what we have to, this is important to understand what he is talking about here when he uses the word time. In the Greek New, or the Greek Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. It's the Bible that Jesus would have used. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The word for time here is the word kairos. Kairos. There's two words for time. Kronos means time as in duration. But chronos time means the time that is right, that is good, that is beautiful. It's the appropriate time. In other words, God gives you the season that you're in because it is the right time. He is the one who has said this is the season of mourning or this is the season of prosperity. He is the one who has given it to you and he has said this is the correct time for you to experience this. Farmer and poet Wendell Berry recounts a conversation on this very same theme with his wife, Tanya. He, she said one day, after we planted a garden, after they had planted a garden on one particular Tuesday, Tanya spoke up of how much she liked the idea of what they had just done in planting their garden. And she said, not because of any convention or custom or law, but simply because it was the right time. My wife planted a garden this week, or she started her seeds. My, my kitchen now looks like a meth lab of some sort, or a, a, like we're, we're now we're like growing pot in our kitchen. We have little seeds that are growing with all these sort of lights over all of the various seeds. Why? Because she has determined that it is the right time. And God is like Tanya, and something like Meredith. He knows when it is the right time. The season you're in right now has been appointed to you by God, and it is the right time. He is fulfilling his purposes, and he says, my timing for you, you may not see it as beautiful, but it is beautiful. 
It is appropriate and it is right and good. The seasons of your life are not random, but they are sovereignly ordained by God. Nothing ever happens to you by chance. Each time and season are serving God's sovereign purposes for you. He regulates your life down to its minutes and seconds, down to the hairs on your head. You might say, what about my seasons of grief? Yes, he has ordained those as well. You see, even your season of grief, notice that in the the poem that God oversees sovereignly both sides of the activities. He ordains peace and war, a time to make peace and a time to kill. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. Simply because God brings these things to our life and he says this is appropriate for your life and your season right now does not mean that he necessarily delights in it. He does not delight in the death of the wicked, the Bible says, but there is indeed still a time to kill. And he has appointed those times. He doesn't delight in the oppressed being downcast, but in his sovereign plan, there are times in which the downcast are oppressed. He says there is a time to weep. You will get a call one day telling you that your mom Or dad died in the night. And he has appointed that day too. Just as well as he has appointed the day in which you heard of your grandchild being born. There are times to laugh and dance and embrace. And those two are days and seasons that God has appointed and ordained. God is not always pleased. Indeed, he grieves with you in your seasons of mourning. But God is never surprised. And God always has a purpose in all things that moves towards the beauty of his sovereign will. If you read the Bible, you'll see this. This sovereign will idea is quite disturbing for us. That he would bring a time to kill and a time for war. This distresses us. And yet, the Hebrew writers are never concerned with absolving God of the responsibility of his sovereignty. They don't try and absolve God of the burden of being in control of a world that is filled with both tornadoes and rainstorms that give life, of sicknesses and wars and accidents and wonderful chance meetings. He's over them all. And so, yes, this brings up some intolerable questions for us and problems, yet the Bible from start to finish affirms this. As it says in Matthew 10, verse 29, Jesus says, Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father's will? Even the smallest things are under God's control. The image here is of a child who's gone to the store and bought two pet birds. God doesn't say that bad things won't happen in this world under his control. You see, even one of the two sparrows will fall dead. That's going to be a sad child. But he also says this, I'm the father and I will care for you and I will provide you exactly what you need when you need it. As the old hymn put it, as the eye is on the sparrow, you can know he watches over you. Even when you may not feel it, or especially when you may not like it, God is always in control, and therefore there are words for us. Do not be afraid. You are more valuable than sparrows. You can't control the seasons of your life. God does. And that is a place of wisdom, if you'll learn that lesson. The second lesson is this. Not only do you not control the seasons, you can't even see their purpose. (laughs) You can't even see the purpose of the seasons. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in his time. And then there's this very frustrating phrase, 
Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. Eternity, what, what does that mean? What he's, he's put eternity in our hearts. He's put inside of us a longing to see how things come out. He's put inside of us a sense that we were made for more than simply this celestial ball, that the story is greater. We sense that we are part of something of a larger story than simply this chapter that we are in. And we are in the middle of all sorts of various chapters and seasons of our life, and we look up at the the author in the midst of a particularly bleak or maybe just boring chapter of our life, and we say, hey, so I know this is only part of the story, but you're the author, and you're writing the end of the story. You want to let me know what happens here? And God looks at you and says, I gave you that desire to know that, but I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) And you look at him and you go, what's the deal with that, big fella? The author looks at us and says, no, I'm writing something beautiful and these pieces pieces fit together, but you're going to have to wait and see how it all turns out like everybody else. Why would God arrange the world and our hearts in this way? Why would he do that? Poking us. You're made for something more than this, but I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you how this season of suffering connects to my glory and to your gain. I'm not going to tell you yet. Why would he do that? Perhaps he's trying to train our hearts to trust him and to fear him, to live daily seeking his bread and his care. How many times do we want to say, God, just let me see. Show me how this will all work out. We so badly want to know, but Jesus even looks at his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, and says this, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You don't get to know. So we have to learn to accept our place, and we have to learn to live in trust in the Lord day in and day out. This too is wisdom. Part of being wise in this world is learning to accept that we have only a very, very limited picture of the overall story. So we can't see. We can't see his purposes and his reasons. And this means what we have to do is we have to be careful. It is... Often I talk to people who look at a season of suffering and they want to interpret it too early and too quickly. Ah, this is what God is doing in that. And maybe perhaps you are right, but perhaps you don't yet see the full story. We can't see, and so we must learn to trust the one who can see the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. But we have this comfort. He says this in verse 14, going down to the end of the passage that we read this morning. He says this, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been and God seeks what has been driven away. In other words, what he's saying here is this. Did you see that line? That for whatever God does endures forever. Why does it endure forever? Because he is eternal. He is eternal. You are temporal. He is forever. We are a moment Psalm 90 says that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah 57 said that God inhabits eternity. He is outside of time. C.S. Lewis described time in this way, that if we were to imagine eternity is all if a piece of paper going and spanning in every direction, and time is one little line on those pieces of paper like this. That's not even your life. That's all of time. 
Because God is outside of time. He is eternal. And therefore, it's like it says in 2 Peter, that to God, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And Revelation says about God that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Ecclesiastes tells us the eternity has been placed in our hearts. There is something inside us that can never be satisfied with the temporal until we meet the one in whom eternity rests. He is the eternal one. A.W. Tozer said this, how completely satisfying it is to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. Perhaps God is teaching you to trust because he is the eternal one. And what does God say he is doing with his eternal work? He says, I'm sovereign, I'm in control, and also I'm eternal, which means I really do control the end of the story. It says in verse 15, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And then it says this, and God seeks what has been driven away. Now, what in the world does that mean? This imagery is suggested of a shepherd. A shepherd who goes running after lost sheep, forgotten sheep. Sheep that have wandered out of the, the sheepfold. And to bring it back into the overall coherent flock in this case, it's not just a sheep, but he seeks out all the events of human history is what this is saying. Those things that we have lost, those things that have been driven away from memory, those things and those people and those activities that we have forgotten, that the world has forgotten, but God has not forgotten. You see, we all have seasons of our lives that we have forgotten, right? You have, there's lots of days that you'll never think of today, ever again of interactions with people that will never come to your mind. And in fact, there are many seasons and days, interactions, that you would rather forget anyways. And so you're just fine with them never coming up. And more than that, we have these seasons that we would like to forget. These moments of incredible failure that cast a ripple effect of consequences into every season of our life. Those moments of such intense pain and sorrow that we would gladly never return to them. God says, I gather them up. You have driven them away, but I gather them up into what I have done and what I am doing in this world. In other words, if there are threads in our lives that are like exposed nerve endings, we cannot understand where they go and how they're supposed to connect to the rest of our story in any meaningful or positive way. They seem utterly silly, arbitrary. But when God says, God says, I seek those things that you have lost from your memory or you desire to lose from your memory, and I bring every single one of those into the story of your life, and I am doing something beautiful in every single moment of your life. It is a part of the coherent whole of what I'm doing in your heart and your life, a tapestry that is breathtaking. He takes the painful and the seemingly broken shards of the moments of your life, and he turns them into a stained glass window that tells the story of his beauty and where you can know and see the glory of your creator and what he has weaved in your life. God does not abandon one second of our life under the sun. He fits each part of it, and even the smallest part, even the most utterly arbitrary, forgetful aspects of your life into his coherent whole. This is the God who turns evil into good, the boring into the significant, and the forgotten into the memorabilia of his glory. Do you believe that? This is the story of Joseph, right? 
Life is good for Joseph in the Old Testament. He has the father's beautiful robe. And meanwhile, his brothers are forming bitterness in their souls such that they act like they're going to kill him and they sell him into slavery where he experiences injustice after injustice after injustice. And then suddenly, by an act of God's sovereign will, he's put in a second over Egypt and his brothers come in to visit him and they realize it's him and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This is what God is doing, not just in the stories of the Bible heroes, but in the most forgotten of people in the lowliest of places of the world, forming and weaving his purposes for their good and for his glory. My life story has broken characters, and I am the lead character who is broken. There are jarring interruptions in my life that seem to make no sense. There are unexpected joys. There are relationships that are called up, even to this day, in unresolved tension and difficulties, and I don't know if they're going to be resolved on this side of heaven. But my life story has also these unexplained contradictions. I have plenty of unanswered questions, but God and his kindness takes my story and he takes your story, the strayed and frayed details of our life, and he, the things that are, we think are lost, irredeemable, and forgotten, and he says, I have not driven them away. I am writing a beautiful story. And if we could get God's perspective, then we could see the beautiful tapestry that God is weaving. But verse 11 says we can't. We are limited. And we only see a small, narrow fraction. But the all-encompassing view of God's work is unattainable to us from our narrow perspective. But while we cannot know everything, God has given us everything we need to know so that we can put our little story into his larger story. He has given us the context of his big story. The big story gives meaning and purpose, even if we can't yet see it. I have bad news for you. You can't see beyond today. You can't see the purposes of yesterday. You can't see how today's chapters fit into the whole story, but I also have good news for you. Jesus, by taking on flesh, invaded your story. He invaded history, the history of this world. And what's the big story? It's the story of salvation and redemption for his glory. It says this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. We read about time in verses 1 through 8 of Ecclesiastes 3. It says this, at the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come. In other words, at the right time he came. And it says this in Romans 5 and 6, for while we were still weak, what does it say? At the right time, Christ Jesus died for sinners. And that is your promise yeah, we don't, it's hard to see Jesus sometimes in Ecclesiastes. He's right there. He's the one who makes sense of things like Ecclesiastes. And you know what? God then sends his spirit to live inside of us, to be with us in time and space, such that he has not simply invaded all of human history with a story of salvation, but he has invaded your story, and he's invaded it, and he's part of it right now. And Jesus promises that he will return at the end of time, at the end of time, and he will put an end to time, and he will gather us up and time will be no more and we'll see fully and finally the beauty of all that he has done. And in that moment, when we come to the last page of our story and we finally see it and the tears fill our eyes with awe and wonder, we're set ablaze in worship to the author of all the seasons, then perhaps we'll finally join rightly the hymn writer who wrote this in worship in the hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Crown the Lord of years, the potentate of time, Creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never 
never fail throughout eternity. How do you respond to such a God? With fear. That's what it says in verse 14. Why has he planned all things and yet not shown us so that we might live before him? Fear, we said a couple weeks ago, is this, is simply to live in the reality before the reality of who God is. This is a fear that sets us free from the fear of man and from the fear of the future. It's not a craven fear or a belief that God is going to punish you, that you need to be afraid of God. For anybody who trusts in Jesus knows all punishment and wrath has been removed from you. It is then a fear that says, that sees God rightly and sees your life rightly, that knows that God is wise and that you know your place before his providential perfect plan. And in living before this God, you'll find there is, if you do that, that there is a rising hope, a rising hope that you can look at the things in your life that seem most boring, most absurd, most painful, and say, even that you will redeem. So yes, this is kind of like a, this is your life. This is a holy carpe diem. But I prefer, you know, carpe diem sees the day. But I prefer another Latin expression. It is learning to do life quorum Deo, before the face of God, is what that means. To fear the Lord, living in the full reality that he is sovereign and he has beautiful purposes. This will give you confidence to live well. Before the face of God, you learn to join the psalmist when he says this in Psalm 31, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Have you learned to say that? This is where wisdom can be found. Last lesson. What does it look like, though, to fear the Lord today? What does it look like to fear the Lord in each season? Well, it looks like this. You can enjoy the gifts of this season. When you fear the Lord, you can enjoy today. Verses 12 and 13. It's the middle. From a literary construction, it's actually the middle point of the text says, this is what I want you to focus on. He's got these, these, these things that teach you the truth, and then in the middle is the wisdom for life. And it says this, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. To know your place allows you and frees you to enjoy this present moment. In other words, don't let what you can't control poison what you can enjoy. You're not in control, so enjoy life. This is life. So much of our anxiety comes from thinking that we can stop what is coming, but all of our fretting and all of our worrying is causing us to miss what is beautiful about this present moment and what God has given you to do. This is life. Novelist Annie Dillard said this, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. She's catching the simple Tuesday into the larger picture of history and eternity. What we do this hour is what we are doing. See that? You're, this is your life. Are you living it? Is what she's saying. When we finally know our place under the sun, it helps us finally put everything under the sun in its proper place and enjoy the few days that we have been given. Life is given, though. That's important. You see this? He's going to say, listen, you can't gain anything. That's right, you can't, because life is a gift. It's all of grace. 
life is a gift because God is the one in charge and God is the one who is writing the full story. We can labor and minister now. And so what do you do when you get a gift? You receive it and you say thank you. So many of you are living your life not receiving God's good gifts, forgetting that they're even there, and frankly living your life in utter discontentment and lack of gratitude. And so life is full of tension and anxiety because you're trying to control things that you cannot control. And you're trying to gain things that cannot be gained, that are not up to you to gain. So what does it look like? When you have, what, if you have a gift from God, enjoy it and be grateful for it. So here's how you do it and here's what it looks like. Enjoying life as God's gift with gratitude means you do good. You do good. Got a few of these. Because God is the one in charge and God is the one writing the full story, we can labor and minister now trusting that he is fulfilling his good purposes in your life. Labor for good today. Today. You don't know if you have tomorrow. So do good today. So what that might look like is making sick for a, food for a sick person in your community group. It might look like inviting that neighbor you don't really like to join the social gathering at, at your house. It may mean being present with one of your children who desperately needs to talk to you. It may mean giving yourself an intimacy to your spouse. Do good today. We've been given a place to be and things to do and people to share this with. God originates these gifts of work and labor, so go to work, plant trees, do the things that God has given you to do today. To do a job in the kingdom of God is a wondrous thing. It is a wondrous thing. So often we subconsciously ask, well, what if my family member that I share the gospel to, what if they never respond? Or what if my kid rebels? All this time I've spent seems wasted. And what if people take advantage of my generosity? And what if by this act I can't do that other act of good? And what if funding doesn't come in for that ministry? And what if we are no longer effective? To those questions I say to you, fear the Lord and remember your place. Those are out of your control. You can't control those things and you're not in charge. And so if God shuts down your ministry because it's no longer affected, blessed be his name. If the ministry was a gift from God to begin with, he gives and he takes away. If the ministry in this moment means you can't take on another commitment, blessed be his name. He gives and he takes away. Do good with what is in front of you. This will make you the kind of person you actually want to be. Someone who is present with other people. That will actually be an effective form of ministry in which you're not always trying to do ministry by thinking about the next ministry you're going to do. The person who will sit with the hurting and ask good questions and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. This is life. This, this is your hour. Are you living? The days are evil and life is hard, so do good while you can. Redeem the time. Second, enjoy life as God's gift with gratitude means you actually enjoy things. Like, you look at them and go, this is good. He gave them to you, so enjoy them. He gave you toys to play with, so play with them. That's why he gave them to you. Mint chocolate chip ice cream. It's so good. And so say it's good. Your child's soccer game, a fire, organizing your sock drawer, vacuuming and enjoying the fresh lines in the carpets, coffee, more coffee, coffee again, a simple walk with your wife, an evening with friends, wrestling with your kids, a good workout, a quiet afternoon reading a book. And all God's people say amen. 
drink in the gifts of God and say, blessed be your name. Acknowledge them. Some of you are like those people who hork down their food so fast they barely taste it. Don't be one of those people. We call those people ungrateful. Stop and taste and see the goodness of the Lord and the pleasures of his gifts. Third, enjoying life as God's gift with gratitude means you enjoy his gifts as he intends. We must learn from God how to enjoy what he has given to us, and that is with gratitude, but it's also seeing his gifts in their right frame. They are not there to replace God. Listen, trying to turn a grapefruit into a baseball doesn't dismiss the value of the grapefruit. So many of you are trying to use the gifts that God has given you and you're trying to make it God. Listen, if you try to use the gifts that God has given you and make it God, it's like using a grapefruit as a baseball. All those things are just going to end up smashed. But it doesn't diminish the goodness of the grapefruit. A grapefruit cannot give us the thrill of a home run, but it can make breakfast pleasant. So enjoy them, but ultimately see that God is more valuable. That what he does and why he gives you those things is so that you lift up your eyes and say, God is so good. I want you. You are the full satisfaction of my soul. So, use his gifts as he is intended. Fourth, enjoy life as God's gift with gratitude means you rejoice in the common and the sorrowful. That means you're content with the 98% of the days that are common. The days when you get up and you clean messes and you do some work half-heartedly sometimes, some with some success and some not, and then you feed the kids and you wave and smile at your neighbors awkwardly and then you go to bed. And you say, blessed be his name. You look at a day in life and you say, this is the, good, the life that God has given me. There will be seasons when you long for the mundane, though, and the boring. <laughs> because it's not just the common that God gives. There's also seasons of suffering and sorrow. Of weeping and mourning. Of war and strife. His gifts, however small, though, won't ever quit, even in the midst of war. And so are you finding God's generosity even in the midst of your sorrows? Corey Ten Boon speaks of grateful joy with God amid the horror of the tortures she experienced in the German Nazi concentration camps. She and her sister learned to give thanks. In particular, one of the things that she gave thanks for was for the fleas that they had. They had fleas that would just hop all over them, and this gave them entertainment to watch the fleas hop from one to the other and all over the place. But more than that, they learned to give thanks because the fleas on their bodies meant that the guards stayed away from them. And so what that meant is because the guards wouldn't come into their barracks, that they could have worship services in their barracks and they could dwell with God because while the guards would not go, God was. And so they learned to say, even in the midst of sorrow, he, even here, in this hellish place, God is with me. You see, God, you can enjoy anywhere you are, even in the midst of such places. Find him not in what you do not have, but find him in the smallest things that remain, even in the seasons of suffering. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. It's gift, not gain. And the preacher is seeking to reorient us to taste the sweetness of ordinary joys where we learn to enter each day with a conviction about the givenness of it all. And so maybe that's what your devotions simply need to be, a simply sitting before God and say, you are the giver of today and whatever it holds. Wisdom is found in cultivating this moment-by-moment awareness of God's gifts. Go read Brother Lawrence. 
practicing the presence of God. It will help you and teach you how to do this. To heed the invitation of the sovereign God who controls all things and promises to include every aspect and every thread of your life into this beautiful tapestry. And wisdom is heeding the invitation of the preacher to see each moment as the means by which God pursues you in the midst of washing dishes and in the midst of marriage kisses. This is your lot. To accept this as our reality is to pursue God's visitation who's welcome to you right now. That each minute of our life contains a sanctuary for worship in which he is embedded. Each hour offers a kitchen table in which you can converse with him. Each wooden path is a place where you can dwell with him and walk with him. Each moment, no matter how wonderfully ordinary or flea-infested it is, offers enough gifts for intimacy with the God who made you and formed you and is writing your story. So today is the day the Lord has given you. Blessed be his name.